0: Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Well, good morning to those of you who are here in the sanctuary, to my friends in the commons, and those of you who are at home from wherever you're joining us, maybe you're driving in a car listening to the podcast. Um, greetings, welcome, and please turn with me in your Bibles, unless you're driving in your car, to uh, Revelation chapter fourteen, verse eight. Revelation fourteen, verse eight, a sermon entitled "Bye Bye Babylon." And as you're turning there, let's circle back and briefly recap where we've been, just to make sure we're all on the same page as we get started. The book of Revelation breaks down into three main parts. Part one was chapter one, and that had to do with things past. John's vision of the exalted Christ, which on one hand terrified him, on the other hand it greatly encouraged him to see how big his God is. Part 2, chapters 2 and 3, things present as the Apostle John wrote letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, both to encourage them during an intense time of persecution and also to challenge them, to correct them some important areas. And then part three, which is by far the longest in the book, chapters four through 22, has to do with things prophetic, that which is future, the consummation of the kingdom. And the purpose of this third part really is to give us as believers the advanced history. And I don't know if you realize how awesome that is to think that God has told us what's going to happen before it happens, right? To give us the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And, of course, we know that this judgment comes after the church has been raptured to heaven. And this is during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, where there are three waves of judgment, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls and we have already covered the seven sealed judgments the seven trumpet judgments but before we get to the bowls which come very rapidly and very intensely we find ourselves in what is known as an extended interlude an extended interlude chapters 10 through 15 and these interludes are helpful to us they serve as pauses in the judgments to fill in some important information between Judgments. They tell us about key players and events. And so in chapters 12 through 13, remember who the key players were? Well, it was the unholy trinity. It was Satan in Revelation 12. It was the Antichrist in the first 10 verses of chapter 13. And then anti-spirit in verses 11 through 18. Now, we we more commonly refer to this anti-spirit as the false prophet. And during the tribulation... The Antichrist and the false prophet, they fulfill two very strategic roles for Satan. Number one, the Antichrist, he is a political leader who has satanic authority to rule. He's the beast from the sea. And then the false prophet, the beast from the earth, he's a religious leader who has satanic authority to speak. And what exactly does that false prophet speak about he speaks about the Antichrist, and he persuades people to worship him. And he's got quite the bag of tricks to persuade people to worship the Antichrist. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The false prophet, he performs great signs, amazing signs of wonder that get people's attention. He, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. He incites the creation of an image of the first beast. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. He animates the image of the first beast, and he causes those who do not worship the image to be slain. He causes all to be marked with the number of the beast, and he controls commerce. This is a very influential, powerful, strategic person persuading the world to buy into and to declare allegiance to the Antichrist. So That's a whole lot of evil, a whole lot of power, which could leave us at this point in the book of Revelation scratching our heads and saying, where's God? Where is God? And is he, is he still on the throne? And at this point in the story, it doesn't really feel like it. And that's where chapter 14 comes in. Chapter 14 provides the reassurance that though Satan is real and he is powerful, we saw that in chapters 12 through 13, God's people and purposes will Ultimately prevail. That's the reassurance that they needed in John's day. It's the reassurance that we need in our day. It's the reassurance that they will need as these events are unfolding. God is still on the throne. He will be victorious. And the Apostle John received this wonderful reassurance by means of three visions. Vision number one was the the followers of Christ. Pastor Mike covered this a few weeks ago. 144,000 sealed Jews who earlier in the tribulation um, were sealed and were evangelistic and ultimately appear on Mount Zion with the Lamb. We get get to see that they made it safely home, reassuring us again that God will be victorious through the tribulation. And these 144,000 also model for us how we can be victorious today. Vision number two that John saw was the vision of the three angels in verses 6 through 13. And each of those angels has a unique message to proclaim to the earth. Message number one, angel number one, he proclaims the gospel. Or as it's said in the text, the eternal gospel. The unchanging message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. As it says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so this angel, this first angel and his message demonstrate again for us the great links that God will go to during the tribulation to save lost sinners. There's great tribulation. There's also great revival. There's great judgment, but there's also great mercy. And now today we're going to look at angel number two in verse eight. This angel proclaims doom. The the good news of verses 6 and 7 is followed by the bad news of judgment in verse 8. This is a message of warning for all who reject the message of the first angel and who who instead choose to follow the Antichrist. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. The second angel, the second message, verse 8. And then as we look a bit ahead, angel number 3 is verses 9 through 13, he proclaims damnation. And that's. let me just tell you ahead of time, this is going to be a straight-up, old-fashioned, hellfire and brimstone message about hell. When's the last time you heard one of those, right? And it happens to be Mother's Day. Okay? So on one hand, I apologize for that. But on the other hand, church, time is fleeting. Jesus is coming. We have no time to waste And if you're a Christian mom, I I think the greatest gift that I could give you on Mother's Day is not some fluffy sentimentality, but straight up proclamation of the truth. And so, plus that's what Pastor Mike would do, right? I think he would be pleased. I think he would be pleased. So, a sermon about hell on Mother's Day, it will be. And then... Chapter 14, it ends with the third vision that we'll cover on the 16th of May. It's the vision of the harvest. That just gives you a flavor of where we're going. we got some intense content, content coming our way, including today's message of doom from angel number 2 in verse 8. All right, we all on the same page now? All right, let's get after it. Okay, the text says this in Revelation 14:8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen. Is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality? Can we just pause for a moment and pray? Father, we thank you again for your word. God, I thank you that in this this world in which we live, where it's hard to know what's true, it's hard to know when we watch the news or we listen to people speak, we don't know what's true except when we open your word. That, we know, is true. And you have not watered it down. You have not uh, spun it. You, you give us the pure, unadulterated truth that we need to hear, and we thank you for it. Um, God, may we open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear your truth today. You have something to say to us as the church. We need to hear it. And so, God, would you help me to proclaim it the way that you would intend for it to be proclaimed? And then, God, help us to be doers of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are four key questions that we want to address this morning. Question number one is what is the origin of the term Babylon? Number two, what is the meaning of the term Babylon in Revelation? Number three, what does it mean that Babylon is fallen? And number four, what does the fall of Babylon have to do with us today? And for those of you who are trying to quickly fill in those blanks, we'll come back. So when we get to each question, you'll have time to fill those in. So let's look at the first question. What is the origin of the term Babylon? And to answer that question, we got to go all the way back to Genesis. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's like the more we delve into Revelation, the more we got to go back to Genesis. Uh, because the two are so tightly connected. what Genesis begins, Revelation ends, their book ends. Um, they have so much to do with one another. we got to go back to Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And the context is the account of the descendants of Noah after the flood. Where we read this, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it says, It is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. Now you probably recognize one of those terms, right? And it is Babel because of the famous tower that goes by that name and appears just one chapter later in Genesis chapter 11. Let's just review the story very quickly. After the flood, God commanded humanity to increase in number to scatter, and to fill the earth. Now, why why was that important to God at this point? Well, he, he desired that his image bearers, those who would reflect his character and influence across the globe. All right? So, hey, be my people, but don't just stay in one place. I want you to spread my character, spread my influence across the face of the earth. It was the same mandate given to Adam and Eve. And guess what? It's the same mandate that's given to us today. That is God's desire for us. But instead of scattering, Noah's descendants chose to do the exact opposite. We read in Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of God. Of the whole earth. So rather than scatter, what did they choose to do? Clump together. They chose to clump together. And I've heard it said that Christians are kind of like manure, right? When they spread out, they fertilize, and when they clump together, they stink, right? (laughs) And that's what happened at Babel. It stunk to high heaven as the people chose to clump together and be about themselves rather than and their comfort rather than be about God and his mission. So we must be aware, church, that the same thing can happen to us today. As the Tower of Babel ultimately became a monument to rebellion and idolatry of rejecting God's commandment to scatter, our steeples can become the very same thing. Now, as this relates to our passage in Revelation, Babel became the birthplace of organized idolatry. Babel became the birthplace of organized idolatry. That's really key to our text today. And when God confused the languages of the people and he ultimately forced them to scatter because they couldn't communicate with one another, rather than spreading God's character and his influence across the earth, they instead spread what? Their rebellion and their idolatry. It became like a contagious virus. And Babel was the super spreader. It's the place where it all began, the birthplace of organized idolatry. Well, then ultimately, Babel came to be known as Babylon. It grew to become a people and an empire continually at odds with God and his people. And this culminated And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. And the taking of the people of God as captives and into exile. And the psalmist wrote of this event in Psalm 137 when he said, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Among these exiles who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon were some Hebrew men that you've heard of, young men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were put in quite a predicament when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he erected a giant statue of himself and insisted that everyone bow down to this statue or else. Now, does that sound familiar to our study of Revelation? I mean, almost word for word, like the actions of the Antichrist and the false prophet in Revelation 13, erecting a statue of the Antichrist and insisting that everyone bow down to it, or else. And again, I keep making this point, but Satan is just not very creative, is he? He has a very limited playbook that he returns to time and time again erect a statue to worship in the book of Daniel, erect a statue to worship in Revelation. It's the same tired playbook. Well, when it came time to bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And I love this visual of the three of them standing while everyone else is bowing. This is what faithfulness looks like. They remained faithful to Yahweh, the one true living God. They would not bow their knee to another, just as God's true people will remain faithful to him during the tribulation, refusing to bow to the Antichrist and his image. And just as we are called to remain faithful to him today, even if it means standing alone with great consequence. Well, you know the story. The actions of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there there was an or else part to that. It got them thrown into the fiery furnace, a furnace that was so hot it killed the men who threw them in. But at the end of the day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not go through the furnace alone. There was a fourth figure seen there. One with the appearance of the Son of God who preserved them through the fire. And in the commons this morning, John led us in this powerful song called Another in the Fire, um, which is so cool because he had no idea that this was part of the sermon today. Just another God thing, another God wink, and that I'd be referencing the fiery furnace. And we sang this song about another in the fire. And so we see here in the book of Daniel a foreshadowing of what is to come in the tribulation, a kingdom that is contrary to God, a king who demands worship and erects an image of himself to which all must bow. And then he persecutes God followers even unto death. Such is the character of Babylon. And so what is the origin of the term Babylon? Babylon becomes the ultimate symbol of rebellion against God. Babylon becomes the ultimate symbol of rebellion against God. It was true at the Tower of Babel. It was true during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. It will be true in the Tribulation as well. Its very name is synonymous with sin, idolatry, and opposition to God and his kingdom. And those who are truly God's people will unapologetically and without compromise reject Babylon and its idolatry, just as it was the case with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So... That is the answer to question number one. What is the origin of the term Babylon? Let's move to question number two. What is the meaning of the term Babylon in Revelation, in our text today, where it says in verse 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great? What's it talking about? You know, what exactly is fallen? Well, as you can imagine, there's quite a bit of conversation about this amongst Bible scholars. Um, Some people think that this refers to a rebuilt city of Babylon. Interestingly, the location of original Babylon was about 50 miles south of what is today Baghdad, Iraq. And interestingly, back in Saddam Hussein's heyday, he fancied himself to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. uh, Reigning over a new Babylonian empire. Well, that didn't exactly pan out as he had hoped, Um, but there is still belief among many that Babylon in Revelation does refer to a literal city that will function as a capital of the Antichrist. I, I think that's possible. I'm not prepared to proclaim that dogmatically, but I think it's possible. Others think that Babylon in Revelation refers to the city of Rome. And that this city of Rome will become the center of a revived Roman Empire. And some will even take this a step further and say that the Pope will be the Antichrist. Another understanding of what they think Babylon is in Revelation. And yet others have asserted that Babylon is actually the United States that this nation will be instrumental in creating the new world order that will put the Antichrist in power. So, you know, just even based on these three, and there are, I'm sure, many more, which is it? Is it a renewed city of Babylon in Iraq or other place? Is it Rome? Is it the United States? Well, at the end of the day, I think this is what we have to do. To really understand Babylon and Revelation, I think we have to fast forward a bit to Revelation 17. Okay, We're in 14 today. Let's fast forward just a bit to Revelation 17. And again, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so this is what it says in Revelation 17.3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So how is Babylon portrayed just a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 17? Well, Babylon is portrayed as a blasphemous, seductive harlot. A blasphemous, seductive harlot enticing humanity to commit spiritual adultery. You you see, throughout Scripture, God is portrayed consistently as a faithful and loving spouse. A faithful and loving spouse. And our sin is described in terms of committing adultery against him. Which which I I hope that gives us some perspective, doesn't it? Just how our sin impacts God. How he feels about our sin. The hurt, the pain that our sin causes him. So it's no surprise that Satan is all about seducing us. Seducing us to cheat on our faithful and loving spouse, God the Father. And as it says in the second half of Revelation 14, Babylon is she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so at the end of the day, Satan's desire is to get us drunk with his lies so that we will be unfaithful to God and his truth. And that would happen in the Garden of Eden, right? That blasphemous, seductive, Harlot showed up, and the, the, the snake, the serpent, seduced Eve with lies instead of God's truth. And again, there was spiritual adultery that took place in the Garden of Eden. It's true then. It's true today. It will be true during the tribulation. It's true when we sin in our lives, when we fall prey to temptation. The same thing happens. And so what this tells us is that Babylon in Revelation is not so much a physical locality, as it is a spiritual reality. It's not so much a physical locality as it is a spiritual reality. It is the Antichrist ideology which centers on idolatry, in which we devote ourselves to other things than God. We pledge our allegiance to the things of the world, as was the case with the Tower of Babel, as was the case with Old Testament Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in answer to that question, what is the meaning of the term Babylon in Revelation? Babylon refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of Antichrist. The ideology, the system of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is, no surprise to you, directly opposed to God and his kingdom. You see, just as God has a spiritual kingdom, so does the Antichrist. Just as God's kingdom has certain values, so does that of the Antichrist. And the symbol of the satanic kingdom and its values is Babylon. It's all wrapped up in that term Babylon. And so those are the first two questions, the answers to them, the origin of the term Babylon, and then what it means in Revelation. Let's look next at question three. What does it mean then that Babylon is fallen? Or more accurately, as the text says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We know that whenever we see repetition like this in the scriptures, like holy, 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 it's used to emphasize the certainty of something. And so such is the case with the fall of Babylon, fallen, fallen, It is spoken of here as if it is a done deal, even though it doesn't actually happen in Revelation until chapters 17 and 18. But here in 14, we can speak of it as if it has already happened. Do you remember what that's called? We kind of throw a fancy term at you every once in a while to talk about this. What's that term? It's the proleptic, right? The proleptic, something that is yet to take place, but it is as good as done. Something that is yet to take place in chapter 14, but it is yet as good as done because it will be in chapters 17 and 18. Just like Ohio State defeating Michigan in November. All right, that is proleptic. I just couldn't think of a better example. It's a good one. It's a good one. And so it is with the fall of Babylon, the satanic world system that is antichrist, that for a season, especially during the tribulation, it appears to flourish. It appears to be winning, even to being described here. How in Revelation 14.8? This is Babylon the, the what? The great. Babylon the great. But today's text proclaims the clear and powerful truth that when it is all said and done, Babylon will be destroyed. Satan's worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom will come toppling down like the house of cards that it is. And judgment will come to all who have aligned themselves with it. This is the warning of the second angel for all who reject the message of the first angel. So... We've looked briefly at the origin of the term Babylon, what it means in Revelation, what it means that it has fallen, is fallen, will fall, proleptic. Lastly, let's talk about what does the fall of Babylon have to do with us today. I think this passage applies to us in at least two ways. Number one, it reassures us about the future, doesn't it? Doesn't that make you feel better? Because even today, it seems like, man, Satan, he just keeps having his way, doesn't he? We just look at example after example after example. It sure seems like he's going to win. But this, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. It reassures us about the future. That in spite of the fact that, man, it seems like he's making so much ground, he will ultimately fall. Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. And so it reassures us about the future. But secondly, It warns us about the present. It warns us about the present. For you see, church, Babylon is alive and well today, is it not? Babylon is alive and well today. Right here, right now, in Cadillac, Michigan, in the United States of America, across the globe, Babylon is alive and well. The blasphemous, seductive, Harlot is working overtime to entice us, everyone, to commit spiritual adultery, to be unfaithful to our God by aligning ourselves with Satan's worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom, and in many, many cases, he is succeeding. The Apostle John wrote of this danger in uh, his epistles. In his epistles, and um, in his epistles, he uses the phrase "the world." The world as a synonym for Babylon, the world. Look at First John 2:15, and uh, in case you didn't get it the first time, he repeats himself using that phrase, he says, "Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when John in this context is using that phrase, the world, he's not talking about the globe He's not talking about people, for, you know, for God so loved the world. Okay, different terminology in terms of what we're talking about here. He's not talking about God's creation. Rather, when he uses the world in this context, he's talking about Babylon, the seducing harlot, Satan's antichrist world system. And he so plainly says in this passage, you will either love God or you will love the world. You can't love both. Jesus said so, right? No one can serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. James says the same thing in James 4.4. This is a repeated theme in the New Testament. An interesting terminology in light of what we've been talking about, the harlot. You adulterous people, James says. Interestingly, writing to believers, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? You can be friends with the world or you can be friends with God, but you can't be friends with both. This is very much an either or proposition. And you know who gets this? The Amish get it. The Amish get it. Now we may scratch our heads at how they live, and there may certainly be justified criticisms for many of their practices. So I'm not saying that we should all become Amish today. That's not the point. But at the end of the day, they've at least chosen to put a stake in the ground and to refuse to become friends with the world, haven't they? We might say poor application of that, but they've at least chosen to take the word of God seriously, that if you're a friend of the world, then you are an enemy of God. Have we taken God's word seriously in this respect? Or have we fallen prey to the harlot? Have we bought into Babylon without even realizing? Because, again, Satan is sly. He's seductive. He he does this in in very incremental kinds of ways and ways which are not maybe initially so obvious. Have we become friends with the world? How do you know? Well, how about these questions that might function as somewhat of a test? Do you think like the world? Do you think like the world? And here's my concern as a pastor, and I probably repeat this way too many times. I get 40 minutes with you in a sermon on Sunday morning. I can't compete with the hours that you spend in front of your television during the week. It's your television that's discipling you. It's just a question of what content you're being discipled by. Right? Food for thought. Do you speak like the world? Is your language any different than the language of the world? The jokes that you tell, the stories that you proclaim, the, um, the scripture flow out of your mouth in, in contrast to things that don't really matter. Do you handle money like the world? Do you watch TV like the world? Do you listen to music like the world? Do you spend your time like the world? Ultimately, do you crave the things of the world? And if you do, then there really is no other conclusion that can be drawn except to say that you're friends with the world. And we've already seen the the great consequence that there is to that. You can't be friends with God and friends of the world. You've bought into Babylon. Maybe you didn't even realize it. You wouldn't have put those, those terms together, but you have fallen prey to the harlot. You are committing spiritual adultery against God, which is serious business, right? So what do you do if that's the case? Well, what would you do if you were in a building that was rapidly being engulfed by flames? What would you do? A building that is soon to be fallen, fallen, you would drop everything, wouldn't you? And you'd get out in a moment. Just like Lot fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd run faster than you have ever run before, desperate to escape. That's called repentance. That's called repentance. As a church, sometimes we get really good at confession. Yep, fell again. Yep, did that again. Yep. We're not so good at the repentance piece. God calls us not only to confession. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to flee the burning building, which is what we're instructed to do in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee as if your life depended on it. Don't dabble in it. Don't compromise with it. Run as fast as you can from it as if your very life depended upon it because guess what? It does. It does. So this is the message of the second angel in John's second vision in John 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In one hand, Oh, how we celebrate that, how we are reassured by that to know that our God rules and reigns and he will win no matter what is going on, no matter how things seem to us in the present, but also a great word of warning to us in the present, because she is the one who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the great, great links that you have gone to to proclaim truth to your people, past, present, and future. We are without excuse in terms of knowing what matters to you, of knowing, God, that we cannot serve both you and the world. And God, I pray that all over this sanctuary today, There would be people convicted by your Holy Spirit, starting with me, about our need to take seriously what your word says. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve the world and God. We cannot be like the world and be like Christ. So, God, would you do a deep, deep work in our lives, even in the quietness of this moment, drawing us to yourself, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Teach us to be more than people of confession, Make us people of repentance. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I can be a help to you um, on your spiritual journey, if you sense that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you very specifically on this topic or any other, I would love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and for us to talk about next steps on your spiritual journey and how we can grow together and how we can fulfill our church's mission of making disciples in your life. And so would you stand together as we sing?